welcome to the study of purpose. I'm your host, Aaron Feigman, and I'm joined by my glorious co-host, Riley Kuffner. Riley, how are you? Doing pretty well, Aaron. I don't know if I deserve the uh, you know, notion of being glorious, but I am feeling pretty good today. Um, got a lot done in the office. We're building uh, some little special gifts for the holidays. Can't disclose what it is yet, but it's getting everybody excited. So um, can't complain. 007, top secret. <laughs> Indeed, but very, very, uh, very much looking forward to our episode today. Yeah, yeah, same here. Um, it's always a good way to, to end the day. This is an evening recording. Um, and we're here with our friend, uh, Kiwe Chase Marshall. So Keyway uh, originally was from is from Trinidad, but he moved here when he was three to New York City, and he spent the bulk of his life uh, as a designer, as a writer, and as an advocate. He's worked with groups like Coors, uh, Fashionista, Elle Magazine, and Condé Nast. Keyway is one of the three co-founders of the Kelly Initiative, a coalition of black fashion leaders who are publicly speaking out against the inequities for black members of the fashion community. We've got a lot to talk about today, so uh, Keyway, welcome to our show. Hi. Hi, Aaron. Hi, Riley. I am excited to chat with you all and uh, excited to sort of like exchange about some of these topics. Yeah, certainly. Certainly. So before we do, you know, the main exchange, <laughs> let's uh, dig into your early life. So, you know, who was Keyway growing up? What's your story? So um, a big sort of part of, I think, who I am that is part of my identity that you might not read uh, externally is that I am an immigrant. My family moved from the island of Trinidad to Washington, D.C., actually, when I was three. So I always give people very explicit placement of Trinidad because I've noted that sometimes I'll be talking and people, it's like when someone's like, oh, you've read that book. And 20 minutes later, you're like, okay, I don't even know what you're talking. I've never read that book. <laughs> so often people don't know where Trinidad is. Trinidad is the southernmost island in the Caribbean chain. And it is very close to Venezuela and very close to Brazil. Um, we are a former British colony. Um, we, the national language is English. Um, but fascinatingly, because of indentured servitude uh, beginning in the 20s, the predominant ethnic group on our island now is people of South Asian descent, people who came to Trinidad from India. So our culture is a mix of African traditions, South Asian traditions, and colonially influenced British and Latin American traditions. Um, so we're a real sort of milieu of different influences. Um, famous Trinidadians, definitely. Right now, Nicki Minaj is probably the most <laughs> globally known Trinidadian, but, uh, but uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is from Trinidad. And there's tons of us. Um, we are a music-loving, because the seal pan was invented in Trinidad, and music-loving people that uh, really, I think, love the, inherently the creative arts. Um, my mother and father moved to the U.S. to uh, attend Howard University and study architecture when I was three. So from the age of three to eight, um, I grew up 
immersed in my mother's uh, undergraduate study of architecture um, and um, really, I think my like, our little like internal mother daughter, mother son family language is one of design and creativity and texture and color and form and composition. Um, because those were formative years as they were sort of professionally and academically formative years for her. And they were sort of like cognitively formative years for me. Um, I think uh, one of the, when, when you all uh, sort of coaxed me to think of sort of definitive moments and events and, and situations in my life, um, my mother, the, the era of my mother studying architecture is definitely one of them. And um, her, her professional journey that she would embark upon, upon after graduating is something that sort of foreshadowed many of my experiences. Um, so my mother was uh, part of uh, a unique moment um, as a black female immigrant architect pursuing working in Washington, DC. Um, in that there was, DC was a predominantly black city at that time. And so there was the potential uh, to work um, doing top level architecture for, for sort of law firms, let's say, or corporate spaces that were held by black professionals. That said, architecture remained an old boys network where mm -hmm. there were certain consistent patterns of who people of all races felt were talented industry leading architects. Right. And those people were not black women. <laughs> um, <laughs> sure. Uh, my mother, I'm very proud of the fact that she, when she was practicing architecture um, was extremely talented. So there were around, I think like 35 people in her graduating class from the School of Architecture. Um, and I would say that maybe about 25% were women. Um, four people received honors. Now my mother and my father were no longer together when they graduated and he was not very much a part of my life, which is I know fascinating because they were part of the same cohort of graduates in an architecture program. Um, but they both were among the four people that graduated with honors. My mother was the only woman that graduated with honors and she had an eight-year-old child. Um, and so I have immense pride in her sort of, to me, evidenced ability. Um, but my mother graduated to a job market where she couldn't obtain interviews, far less positions, even though she graduated, you know, very high in her program. Um, and, you know, it would seem like, oh, you went to Howard University. It's a preeminent black, uh, historically black college in Washington, DC. You're looking to stay in Washington, DC and work in architecture in the city. It would seem like, whoa, and you were top of your class and, you know, um, and in the moment in which my mother graduated, 
there was no cultural capital for her being a dynamically talented black female professional. So unlike now where, you know, we are in a moment where the media has posited a capital in highlighting the profiles of marginalized people, um, even if it's at this moment at times about tokenism, there is some capital. When my mother graduated, they had not even moved to a, a, a tokenism space of capital. Um, and it's something that I think about a lot now is in the work I'm doing with the Kelly Initiative and in the conversations I want to stimulate culturally, um, that there needs to be consideration of creating restorative opportunities for talented people that would otherwise go from cradle to grave without being opportunities without being given opportunities to realize their potential. Mm -hmm. uh, there is, I think, a, whether or not it's intentional, there is a frustrating um, a phenomenon of wanting to, for better, for lack of a better way of putting it, wipe the slate clean and start from now. Mm -hmm. But there are many people who will live through that now still in spaces of disenfranchisement. Right. And I am very insistent that part of the work of atonement is figuring out a means of creating restorative opportunity for those individuals who are still trying to figure out how to, within the time that they have, realize various potentials. So my mom is someone who I always sort of really think about as I do that work because um, she is incredibly sort of resilient. Um, and there's a lot of study around how Black uh, Americans that pursue becoming professionals are forced to grow and exhibit a level of a psychological sort of tenet called grit um, that is not demanded of their non-Black counterparts. So it's like the amount of job rejection, the amount of inequitable pay, the amount of uh, financial instability, um, inadequate titling, that you, you have to endure that um, sort of uh, indefinitely. And uh, my mom, after working as an architect and not being able to advance to the titling that was commensurate with her ability and her study, um, you know, had to career pivot in her, I guess, she's in her, in her late 40s uh, with two children, one college-aged child and one, uh, at the time, late elementary school-aged child. And she went back to school and got a master's and began a new profession um, that, that engaged some of her study in architecture. She became a uh, construction project manager. Um, but none of her, none of her colleagues that were not black, that were working in the firms that she was working as an architect, 
were being forced to consider such drastic career pivots at that age, um, you know, with children. Um, but uh, yeah, so, so, so this uh, narrative um, experienced by my mother gives me very intimate grounding in how many people's capacity to realize their potential can be so affected and thwarted by cultural structures that work towards inequity. And so in speaking with you all about purpose, one of the things that this has sort of pushed me to, to re-approach and think about on a more granular and macro level is how there is a unique relationship that people that are marginalized navigate with uh, purpose um, and opportunity. Because if opportunity is a given, then your own embrace, location of, embrace of, and pursuit of your purpose become about agency. You know, that's you applying yourself. And granted, there could be many reasons valid why that application is challenging. But active roadblocks would not be one of those reasons. Um, if those active roadblocks exist, I think the culture at large, to be equitable, has to acknowledge them explicitly. Yeah. And we live in a moment in which I think the conversation around that is evolving in a new direction of information because in the past, that acknowledgement has been purely about sort of altruistic intent. Am I empathetic? Mm -hmm. But we live in this data-driven, if not data-exhausting moment <laughs> But a lot of the inequity that we all perceive or ignore in our culture is now absolutely quantifiable. Um, and I think that uh, in looking at, at this conversation as I uh, anticipated sitting with you all, I began to really think about how um, the restorative work that culture needs to do Part of it is not forcing those who are disenfranchised to, on a one-off basis, every time they step into new situations, prove their disenfranchisement. Because we now have the ability to quantify that and make it just common knowledge. Yeah, no, I think, I think that makes a lot of sense. And you went into a lot of uh, interesting areas there. But um, when it comes to the restorative idea, um, you know, I, I think that, you know, the alternative you propose or you mentioned this idea of being able to, to wipe the slate clean, you know, no such thing exists, you know, for, for people. Um, and you're correct. You know, yeah. it's funny because even though that fresh start press reset on the Nintendo in real time, in real life with real people is impossible that is often the approach embarked upon by 
society, by institutions, by communities, by companies. Um, and it's not sort of, it's not by accident. It is easier. And sure. we are in a moment now where there is enough capital and credit granted for that hitting reset. Um, you know, I, I have, I think, a unique narrative that is informed how I walk the world because I, I think that statistically, and this is something that I joke with some of my, my friends, the very few that have similar narratives that we live in theory, that mathematically and statistically, if, if America was represented by a hundred people, immigrant, black, Ivy educated, elite private school having attended, top tier fashion brand studio having worked in black professionals, it wouldn't be one person out of a hundred. And as a result, the other, you know, 99 and nine tenths of people don't really have a lot of inherent understanding of this tiny, tiny percentage of people's experience. Um, and I am in some ways empathetic to that, but in some ways aware of how people actively maintain that ignorance because it works to their benefit. Um, I have been in environments where I'm in the extreme minority my entire life. So when my parents moved here in Washington, DC, um, the public school system was at that time, and I believe still actually is, among the most underperforming nationally. Um, my mother, my mother comes from an island that, for better or worse, prides itself on the caliber of colonial education that every citizen, no matter their socioeconomic strata, is afforded. And I joke about that because I'm like, you're celebrating your oppressor's like indoctrination of you. Right. <laughs> and on the other hand, my grandfather, who is only a fifth grade graduate, can quote Dale Carnegie. You know, wow. so um, <laughs> I, I have to say, like, it is a very, very uh, comprehensive uh, education system that my mother grew up within. And so when she got to the U.S. and was in a city with this really underperforming public school uh, system, she literally, um, I'll never forget, like, I did, like, kindergarten admissions to these elite private schools that literally there is no difference between the kindergarten admissions process for Washington DC elite private schools and the Ivy League undergrad admissions process. <laughs> standardized tests, you go on crazy interviews where you are like assessed on both substantive and superficial criteria. There is legacy privilege. Like, it's all there. Um, Interesting. Yeah. And at the age of five, I wound up at um, a private school, very small, uh, 
of 50 children per year. Um, I was one of two black boys um, in a class with a total of three black students, in a year with a total of three black students. Um, there were no Latino people in that year. Um, there were maybe two Asian students. Um, and so the majority of the school culture was informed by um, an upper middle class uh, Judeo-Christian uh, professionally influential because we were in DC, a lot of those people are sure. on the Hill um, and, or, and or judges and or, you know. They work with that stuff, yeah. yeah. Um, and those environments were that which I would remain within throughout the rest of my education, junior high. It actually ramped up as I went into prep schools. Um, I, from age, I guess, 12 to 15, um, attended an all, the all boys cathedral uh, school in Washington, DC. And um, once again was, so I guess this was around, gosh, what year? Like maybe this was probably like 92 or 93. In, in junior high school, uh, there is the equivalent of sort of like a class president. Hmm. Um, and it's it, because of the fact that it was this church school, it, it models the old sort of like, for lack of a better way of putting it, altar boy sort of uh, convention. So the role is head prefect. And interesting. I was the first black head prefect in the school's history. And something began to click for me at a young age, um, just sort of experientially. And it's something that in this moment in American history, I think is becoming palpable to the broader culture. I soon realized that as a black person in predominantly white environments, it was incredibly difficult at times to be in those environments because of how misunderstood I was. That said, there were a lot of firsts to be accomplished. Sure. Um, and I began to realize that many of my classmates resented that their accomplishments weren't firsts. Mm. And so there was a dissonance between sometimes the environmental sort of celebration because the school is getting capital for being like, look, 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 we're not as racist as we used to be. We have a, <laughs> it's not 1956 anymore. So they're kind of like, let's, even if we have no idea how to feel about this, we're going to celebrate it because it, it, for some people, evidences us making progress. Mm -hmm. In and among the student body, there was different ways of processing that. And one of the things that I began to realize was how for some people um, who are so slotted within spaces of mainstream enfranchisement, there is a struggle with finding ways to be differentiated. 
because, uh, you know, the ease with which one might walk through situations actually works to your detriment when you want to stand out. Um, sure. and, and so, so those, those middle school and high school experiences um, really began to give me, I think, an early perspective on the professional situations I would wind up in as an adult. <laughs> but the people who I was engaging with, it was their first time encountering anyone like me. I had been encountering their counterparts since I was five. And um, it's, that's one of the realities that I manage in all of the work I do, but specifically the advocacy and editorial work I do is a bit of frustration on my part with chronically having to bring people up to speed um, on experiences that I think now they should actively be educating themselves in regard to. Because even though those experiences are marginal in the visibility they're granted by like the media, they aren't really marginal experiences. <laughs> like I always joke that like, so I lived in New York uh, starting in 1997 and I joke that like this in Manhattan proper, sort of bleeding out, bleeding north, bleeding east, bleeding south, you know, you really are finding that people of color cannot afford to live in Manhattan. So, you know, more and more of the upwardly mobile Manhattanites, their encounter with people of color, I joke, is like at Chipotle getting a burrito. And so like a lot of their when when like anecdotally some like someone who isn't a person of color is saying like I mean I live in New York like there are people of color everywhere I go I'm thinking to myself and you're like kind of deciding whether or not they should be putting guac in the burrito like that's the level of exchange um I now sort of really am critically aware of how when for lack of a better way of putting it, how when people that fancy themselves to be progressive are leading like Jared and Ivanka lifestyles, um, they can be misaligned in regard to what really their relationship with communities of color is. They <laughs> may brand themselves as being like fully vested in equity, but on the daily, their exchanges with um, people of color are transactional and they are operating from a space of hierarchy and mm -hmm. financial power. Mm -hmm. um, so how do you change some of those mindsets? Is it by like drawing awareness to these things like you're mentioning? I could continue to be very esoteric and vague, <laughs> but I'm actually going to like go directly to the heart of this. Um, cause I really, um, sort of have distilled this down to like where the change is going to occur. Like, God bless you all. <laughs> God bless you too. But white women are ultimately at the nexus of potential change because white men 
really have no imperative for change to occur. It is literally taking power away from white men that they would otherwise indefinitely have the indefinite sort of, yeah, they would always have exclusive access to this power. So power in, in our culture, all of the discussions we have about equity, be they around gender, race, sexual orientation, religion, socio, it's actually all about redistributing power that is now primarily located in the community of white men, right? And we all know that whiteness is porous and every now and again, new people become white that weren't white before. And, but I don't, honestly, it's like if I had to like do the hard sell to, you know, an alt-right polo shirt wearing, tiki torch carrying, uh, <laughs> you know, rally attendee, I, I, I'd be like, I got nothing, you know? <laughs> right. no. Yeah, you're not getting through there. Yeah, I'm yeah. not getting through, nor do I have a, a, just in terms of rhetoric, a strategy that I think would prove effective. Because how am I telling him to give up power that he doesn't have to? Because he's not even hypocritical in his maintenance of that power. Because that is the history of his identity space. So he is compliant with the founding fathers of America's ideologies. So now, as we are in this moment in which I think, I always say that, you know, the paradigm shift um, ushered in by Me Too and Time's Up in the course of a year is perhaps one of the most unprecedented, inspiring, and previously unbelievable, like of anything I've witnessed in my lifetime. Um, and to be a bit more specific about what I think is so dynamic about Me Too and Time's Up is that it took phenomena that have existed since the dawn of time, created codified language so that each person that experiences said phenomena, like I said, doesn't have to redefine it and prove it from scratch on an individual one-by-one -one basis. So now we say, oh, you know, that's a Me Too situation or that won't be tolerated in this office, time's up. And everyone, whether or not they believe in the veracity of an accusation or are sort of in support of leveling the, the sort of gendered power playing field, they know the discussion, right? right? The discussion became so ubiquitously embraced by the community for which it was advocating women and white women that you even had women who were ideologically in opposition of some of its leaders fall in rank. So you have someone like Megyn Kelly, who like sits on Fox being like denigrating of so many progressive women. She does it for like a living. <laughs> like that's keeping her lights on. Right. Uh, sort of realized and some people would, you know, some uh, would say gamed out 
I don't know. I'm not in her head to know, but I do know this, that at the end of the day, it is very difficult to find women on any side of the political aisle who won't stand in solidarity with a paradigm shift in regard to uh, things like sexual harassment and the culture of not creating spaces of belief for sexual assault victims. And that for me was like, blew my mind, blew my mind. And it occurred over the course of a year. There was a before and an after. And on the tail side of this, Harvey Weinstein was sitting in a cell, you know, like that. <laughs> yeah, something happened. Yeah, something happened. And something that, you know, literally, you could not have convinced anyone that things would have played out in that manner at that pace, right? Now, then things become complicated because in conversations of equity, we have to look at how white women factor in the equity that other marginalized, denigrated communities might be pursuing. Are they holding the purse strings sometimes? Are they the ones with the potential to green light projects? Are they the ones with the potential to set up uh, office hierarchies based upon you know, completely superficial favoritism. Um, that becomes a space where, unlike white men, to be, you know, adherent to the principles of many of the founding mothers, shall we say, right? Who are not the stand by your men, wives of George Washington and Thomas Jefferson, um, who secretly had like a common law black wife, but I digress. But, <laughs> but, but more the sort of, you know, uh, uh, Gloria Steinem's and the, the, the Susan Sontag's and, and the, the most sort of instrumental women in contemporary feminist rhetoric speak candidly, Jane Fonda, about how one must advocate for people that like women are operating in the space of second-class citizenship. But we now have two presidential election cycles in which the majority of white women have voted for someone who is so committed to, if not maintaining, reinforcing America's inequitable hierarchy. So something isn't checking out. And so for me, a lot of the energy I direct in, I mean, I, I have a very budgeted amount of energy for what basically becomes attempting to reprogram people to like dismantle the cultural programming and like offer them an alternative. Mm -hmm. The energy I budget for that operationally, I more than not will reserve for white women, not white men because I really don't think there is any incentive at this point, and until there is, um, I don't know that there's enough incentive for white men to do the work of acti actively dismantling how they look at culture through the traditional lens and giving power that they could otherwise maintain to other people. All right. 
Yeah, I mean, it's a yeah, it's a difficult situation, but that analogy definitely makes sense. What you're describing, um, you know, I kind of imagine like ad spend. Mm -hmm. You're going to spend ad, you know, yeah. money where you can get, you know, actually some change out of that, yeah. some some impact from it. Yeah. So you can only do so much, and that makes a lot of sense. What you're breaking down, why white women are a good candidate for for that. And, you know, if you really want to, like, come at it as an MBA marketing, like, <laughs> that's just me, like, putting that, my thing on No, it, no, you know? you're like, well, we need to just make sure that women who are most likely to be early adopters of this can then become, right. like, ambassadors, you know, as opposed to, like, going into spaces where people are less receptive, because it is getting delivered in this gender non, gender presentation, non-conforming, Black, you know, queero packaging at the end of the day. Um, mm -hmm. And so there is also that, that, that I, as someone who works with such intimate understanding of aesthetics and nuance and the intangibles that are so influential in the decisions we make and how we live, live our lives. I, I know <laughs> it's, not my, it's not my first time at the radio. I know when I walk in a room, the range of responses I engage. And I also have learned which of those are worth my daily time to, you know, best in modifying. So, um, so that said, I mean, I never, I always say like, what I wish more people realize is that we all make assumptions superficial about those who are different from us, but we ideally always allow for those people to prove us wrong through their actions. Um, not just what they say through their actions. And so I'm, I am always, I'm like, please, I want to be proven wrong. Like I really <laughs> right. want to have like perspective altering. In fact, at times I think about how, I, this is how I put it at times to help people understand. Like, so m my best friend who I've known since I was 10 years old, um, she is black and her husband is white Jewish American. Um, we have a really sort of like constructively candid dialogue about race and culture among the three of us. And as a couple, they are so, um, not just open to, but insistent upon having very candid uh, and direct conversations. And they appreciate my like comfort with going to places that are uh, uncomfortable. And one of the things I've said to her is like, I generally don't have positive experiences when it really boils down to it with white men. Um, and I definitely don't have like her, the very sort of restorative in terms of like restorative in terms of like optimism experience of ultimately meeting and coupling with and having and marrying and having children with a white man. Um, it gives her sort of at the end of the day an optimism and the potential for someone to be an iconoclast in their community and in their identity space. I don't have that like personal experience, 
my experiences tend to be in the academic and professional context through which I walk. And they're not very, they're certainly not restorative. They don't lean towards inspiring, but they do mm -hmm. tend to follow consistent patterns. Um, mm -hmm. And for me, uh, at this point, um, I am so sort of open to having an experience, you know, make me say, whoa, did not see that coming. I mean, and honestly, um, an example of that is the friendship that I cultivated with uh, Britt Brown, who appeared on your podcast, in that um, I think initially, of course, I made certain assumptions about Brit, but I was very open to Brit um, as an individual in her actions, showing me that that is outside of what I would assume. She did, and we have cultivated, I think, a very authentic friendship. Um, but I think that many people within the culture are still um, exchanging words for actions. And uh, it's something that within the work of the Kelly Initiative, I'm very explicit about. So we are in a point now, and to, to sort of ground this in something that occurs in the fashion industry, we are at a point where um, an industry is attempting to pursue atonement that they are calling like transparency uh, via like ad campaigns and one-off sort of tokenized opportunities. But those things are really performative optics, specifically because performative optics don't align with the broader espoused objective. So if the broader espoused objective is internal organization, opportunity for black professionals to get work, equity and pay, an ad campaign doesn't address that. An ad campaign generates more revenue for the company. So it's a performative optic. On the flip side, what the Kelly Initiative is pushing industry to embrace is radical transparency. Now, mm -hmm. radical transparency is inherently uh, discomforting for many because with radical transparency, you don't just expose the optics that work to your business imperatives or your organization's, uh, what could be your organization's core objective. It's radical transparency. You expose both what might be deemed good and what might be deemed bad. You open yourself up for both affirmation if you're doing some things that are constructive and criticism if you're doing some things that are either counter, counter like that are, that are not constructive and or that may be even like hypocritical. Now, wel welcoming that critique, that authentic critique, if it is grounded in fact, if it is grounded in substantiation and more and more if it's grounded in data, welcoming that critique, that is a key tenet of radical transparency. And right now, um, the, the public at large has to develop a discernment to be able to you know, locate when we're dealing with performative optics and when we're dealing with radical transparency. If you were, you know, I would, I would tell you, if you're not sure, 
bet on performative optics. <laughs> we live in a capitalist culture. And at the end of the day, you know, people are bottom line driven. Um, but we can ideally begin to posit radical transparency in the conversation and not give people credit for that when what they're offering is a performative optic. Mm-hmm. Have you seen this transparency at all uh, actually occur since you started this initiative? Mm, not in the fashion industry, as far as I'm concerned. Um, and it's, it's challenging because it is an industry that is so inherently celebratory of and vested in optics in general. It is an aesthetic and visual sort of uh, dialogue in which we engage as fashion professionals. Um, I would say, while to, to look at another industry and a lot of the work I do with the Kelly Initiative graphs best practices from other spaces, while in the tech industry, they are far from getting it right, they are more closely approaching radical transparency via making the practice of um, demographic disclosure um, mandatory for top tech companies. So it started in around 2015 that in sort of like a domino uh, knock, like, Google, I mean, I I might be inaccurate about what the exact order was, but it was like Google, Facebook, LinkedIn, all began being required, if I'm not not mistaken, actually, I think Yahoo may have been the first, which was like the one thing Yahoo did that was noteworthy for like all of the the early Forever, yeah. (laughs) The the first 10 years of the millennial. Um, That was the one thing that worked out. Um, They did it, and then other people began having to disclose. And I think that that demographic disclosure, you can't begin the conversation until you have it. So every conversation you have without it is performative. And now the challenge that I navigate is that within the community that I advocate for um, Black fashion professionals, black professionals, black people in America in general, there is such an explicit culturing to pursue opportunity through tokenism, to pursue opportunity without dismantling structures of inequity, that it's a bit challenging to get that community to fundamentally believe that a more radical change is indeed possible. And, you know, in the work I do, I had to sort of, I had to develop a thick skin based upon the fact that I said to myself, listen, I've already walked through and done dynamic work within top tier design studios. I've published writing that evidences my knowledge as a fashion sort of critic and my sort of uh, communication sort of uh, acumen as a writer. So I'm not like, oh my God, I just need to see my name in ink. Um, And so for me, as well as 
as well as the fact that outside of those sort of more recent things in my life, I have been in competitive academic and professional spaces as a black person in the extreme minority my entire life. So I don't, I don't walk with any insecurity about my abilities, nor do I need to get in a room to, to know, am I good enough? Could I actually cut it? Um, that's, but I exist in theory. Most black people have not had my experiential privilege. Even black people that have far greater economic privilege may not have had my experiential privilege. And our culture does make them feel that they need to do whatever they can, even if it's at the detriment of the community from which they come, to get in those rooms to know if they're good enough. Mm. And uh, it's something that, for me, in my sort of like navigation of purpose became rather clear. So as I prepared to chat with you all, I started thinking about like purpose and, and what, what that sort of abstract nebulous concept really means to me on the daily in the work I do. And what I sort of began to suss out is that for me, I navigate a sort of duality in purpose. So there's my core purpose. What motivates me to do most of the creative work I do? And when I think about that, that is about me loving being able to open people's like sensory pathways to like color and texture and thoughts and sounds and experiences and uh, integrations and pants and handbags and, you know, dining experiences that they wouldn't otherwise have imagined. And there is something really magical to me in a moment in which, okay, so for example, I do, one of the projects I work on is the, these tie-dye shirts, one of which I'm wearing right now. Cool. And it is something that is a labor of love born out of this notion that like, at this moment in my life, I don't really have the resources to realize some of the product that I sit in my head designing all day long. So what can I afford to make? And uh, I wanted to do something that took a very simple concept. And I literally, I said, I want someone to think, huh, I could have done that all this time. I, like, why didn't I ever think of that? And so what I simply do is, well, I, I work with a craftsperson in LA. I did some trials and then I was like, I'm not capable of selling people shirts that ruin their laundry. So I need to work with a real tie-dye factory. <laughs> um, as I think of two color pairings, that have some sort of symbolic representation and have a, for me, a stimulating visual relationship. And I enjoy how people engage with them being like, oh, wow, I like them, but whoa, the pink and lavender, I really like, or whoa, the burgundy and orange, there's something about that one. So that for me, that ability to take something as simple as a, bisected t-shirt with a tie-dye line of demarcation down the center and have someone have like an amplified sensory experience. That's, that's one of my core 
purposes. I like doing that. Then I have community purpose that is central in the work I do, which is about saying, I want to be able to support and make pathways for people who aren't getting to access their core purpose. And it's the duality of those two that I navigate um, at times with challenge because at times I'm like, I'm not here creating pathways and I'm not getting to engage my core purpose. And then at times I engage my core purpose and oddly have a anticlimactic deflation because I think about people like my mother and people who have lived prior to this cultural moment who never or didn't as regularly get to engage their core purpose, their core purpose. And so that, that's what is often sort of my compass is, is locating balance in those two things. And also increasingly trying to like swing big in regard to both of those, you know, aim for the fence or beyond. Um, so with, my core purpose, it's saying like, let me not continue as a design professional to wait for the magical venture capitalist because at the end of the day, I'm watching my colleagues marry into the capital that they need to launch their business. And, you know, that's not necessarily the path that has been picked for me. Um, so I have to like, you know, with my limited resources, take certain risks and I got to do it now. And then in regard to the community purposing, it's often now saying that um, I have to step outside of fear of backlash. And as long as I'm speaking truth, um, be very vocal for those who can't, you know, who literally you know, I always say like, I've taken certain risks as a professional because up until now, I've only had one mouth to feed. Now I have like a mouth and a quarter. <laughs> um, there you go. Yeah. Um, but what if I had, like, you know, I, I have a colleague, she has two children. Right. So the notion <laughs> of being professionally like blacklisted or shadow banned is of a different consequence to her. Um, you know, I, another way that sort of like community purpose manifests in my life is always noting my challenges, but pushing myself to think about those who walk with greater challenges than mine. So mm -hmm. this sort of granular example of that is, okay, so we all identify as men. When a friend of ours who identifies as a woman is talking about looking for an apartment. Um, like, let's say I'm here in LA. I can be like, oh, this part of town is great, that part of town is great. But I have to think about the fact that she is going to have to get from public transportation or her car or to her apartment after it's dark. And what is her experience in that reality um, that is very, very informed by the fact that she is a woman? Mm -hmm. and and so I can live in East Hollywood and when I'm on a writing deadline, walk to the 7-Eleven at three in the morning, I don't think about it twice. And, and, sure. you know, and I can even engage 
like a little bit of intentional male privilege in knowing like if I dress a certain way, definitely no one will bug me because I'm the person they're avoiding, you know? <laughs> right. Um, right. And, uh, but when I speak to my female identified friend, I can't be like, yeah, East Hollywood is great. The rent is really manageable. You should look for a place here. Cause at the end of the day, you know, she's not going to feel comfortable if she, she's not gonna feel comfortable living by herself. She's not gonna feel comfortable walking to sure. the car. And that is part of that community purpose is thinking about even within your marginal space, those who walk with greater challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Being, being aware of that. Yeah. And so, yeah. And so how did you, how did you discover um, this purpose? You, you talked about the two aspects there and, you know, I think that you talked um, early on, maybe a bit more about the latter one, about how you really want to help those, you know, in need, those who don't have their own voice to speak, uh, speak up because you can. Um, but how about that other side of the purpose and your, you know, art experience Um, Yeah. How did you find that? So I think that my creativity and my, my spaces of identity very much are intertwined and my relationship with embracing both was formed relative to other people. I think at an early age. So I came out at 14 and in a very sort of, non-traditional way. Um, I first told my mother and that was sort of like over a summer before I went back to uh, 10th grade. And uh, at my school, we sort of had this day before classes kicked off where you registered for classes, bought your books and um, classmates were sort of like teasing me about the fact that they had seen me in uh, a certain district in Washington, D.C. that at the time um, was very much sort of the nexus of gay community. Now, my mother's, the firm that my mother was working as an architect at was in this area of D.C. called DuPont Circle. And I had a summer job there. So (laughs) there was a lot at play there in terms of like class strata and the assumptions people made about how I was like, you all were hanging out all summer. Like, you know, like <laughs> I was working. I, I was working. I was working with <laughs> DuPont Circle. Um, so because I'm me and because I've been sort of like, whether I knew it or not, sort of like media minded my entire life, I went home that evening and I wrote a letter saying, you know, I told my mother I was gay this summer. She's supportive. Now, because so many people have inquired, I am making this common knowledge within the school community. And now, since you all wanted to know so badly, you will have to manage your knowledge of this. So I wrote this letter. And then the next day was the first day of school that kicks off with a all school um, and including our sister school, which is on the other side of the cathedral and the children's school. So all of these schools go to the cathedral for a first day of school chapel service. Mm. I hid in the bathroom and posted the letter on the bulletin board um, while everyone was at chapel. And then when everyone came back from chapel, 
I was the gay kid in Washington, D.C. <laughs> like, That's funny. Yeah, it, it, was, it was one felt swoop. I mean, my friends at other high schools called me that night. Um, and, 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 and so I have a very sort of, um, uh, I don't know if it's unique, but it is not what I have met often in terms of other people. I have a, a very unique relationship with self-assessment and then like kind of getting on with it. Right. So, putting it out there. Yeah, and, yeah. And because I, I, I am a creative person, but ultimately a very pragmatic person. And I think from a very young age, always have this thing going on in my head of like, they're 24 hours in a day. I really need 40. So of the 24 hours, what am I spending hours on? And so I'm like, I cannot waste time with like closet nonsense. That's ridiculous. <laughs> like, so that was my 14 year old logic was like, we're going to get this all over with. And then I'm going to move on to like, like trying to get that pair of platform sneakers to go to a raid <laughs> and, right. you know, like getting like all these CD singles, B-sides of Janet Jackson's like Janet album. Like I was like, I really need to focus on the important stuff here. <laughs> and um, yeah, so, and then with my creativity, um, I have always kind of approached things that stimulate me via this notion of like, I need to try it now. Like, so, when I was in high school, that was a lot about like becoming interested in fashion and spending a lot of time and cognitive time going to thrift stores and reworking things and trying versions of all of the things I was seeing in magazines um, for better or worse to develop sort of informed perspectives. Um, and the ways in which that sort of like pushing myself to self-assess and then putting into motion that which I feel is authentic and true to me has been consistent in my personal life, my advocacy work, my creative work. Um, mm -hmm. And it's something that is, is often misunderstood, um, I think, because I, I don't necessarily know that you know, there's some people that just clearly aren't wired that way. Mm -hmm. And then there are people who, who resent the way it indicts their indecision or their inauthenticity. Um, <laughs> they might not even know it that they do. Um, uh, but for me, it is always super exciting to find newness creatively and like jump into it that's always the most fun stuff for me hence maybe a lot of different projects like you were talking about you know bouncing around to a lot of different companies and exploring yeah, i mean that yeah. that wasn't all, that was rarely on my own volition <laughs> but, <laughs> oh, no. but um i think what what is a part of me is um and i pride myself upon is as a designer so I always joke that like, when you say you're an apparel designer, people in their mind, they picture you in this gorgeous sort of 
gallery space, really high ceilings, there's columns, there's, there's, there's chiffonous fabric strewn from the ceiling blowing, you know, Giselle Bungeon or Naomi Campbell is on a pedestal. You're running with a bolt of fabric. You run 20 times around her. And then someone says, fabulous. And then you're like, make it. And then it gets, that's what people picture. What I really do um, is work on a small team. So when I worked for Michael Kors, for instance, it was Michael, a design director, and two designers, one of which was me. That was my first job as a designer that I had advanced into from an intern. Um, and Michael, at the time, uh, every season um, has a specific uh, aesthetic pivot to his broader brand language that he needs to express in a collection. And we, on the design team, build the language of that pivot via fabric development via a new color story that's markedly different, but somehow related to um, places the brand has gone before via um, looking to see if we can express categories that have sold well in a new dynamic way or in introducing new categories that are poised to sell well. Um, so it is this work of speaking through someone else's language. So you're studying them and trying to give them that which, if they had all the time and space in the world, they would create. Um, and when you move to a different company helmed by a different designer, especially a designer who is what, what in the business used to be called celebrity designer. That term has now been uh, transferred to celebrities who start fashion projects, but it used to mean a designer who had become a household name and therefore is now a celebrity. When you work for designers like that, the public often became so well-versed in their language that that designer was under a lot of pressure to maintain adherence to their own language. So they couldn't mm. about face. Um, right. And that's why they often needed teams because they were like, I can't come up with, nine million pivots. Um, so designers of that nature to be less vague, those are designers like Calvin Klein, Donna Karen, um, Halston. Halston. And uh, in America, why that becomes especially challenging to be really sort of specific about the work of designers and design teams is because unlike in other markets, Americans up until rather recently, had a very sort of conservative spectrum of, 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 of the way they would dress. Mm. And that is not a bad thing. Like I am someone who is very um, vested in sort of the hallmarks of American taste, um, elevated American taste, I should say. <laughs> you can get a little dicey on the other side. Um, but uh, so when you're, you know, you really are thinking about nuanced reimaginations of a vocabulary of classic American clothing for many of the brands for whom I worked. Um, and it is work that, you know, it is 
on one hand, something I was built for because I, as an immigrant and as a minority outsider, have been sort of, I have been sort of having to study mainstream culture as a mode of mobility my entire life. Um, now, as a creative, I push myself and others with whom I'm in dialogue to think about what I call like adjusting the ratio of mainstream to margin, like widening the parameters of what is deemed mainstream so that hopefully at some point there will be no margins. Um, and, you know, that is at times a re reevaluation of in quotes, what's in good taste and what's in bad taste. Um, because, you know, there's this sort of like notion of like, well, good taste is like certain fibers that make fabric that are more elevated and of better quality. But we also know that there are race and class and culture correlations with taste too. And it's exciting to live in a moment where some of those things are being exploded. That's cool. Yeah, that's really cool. And then, you know, it, you were mentioning there um, about, you know, how you're an immigrant mm -hmm. as well. And you were talking about that at the very beginning. And I wanted to circle back with it because um, you seemed very um, – associated with the with the trinidad culture yeah you know like like it's very you know part of your own yeah um as as it is and so i'm just wondering um you know how you learned about that culture and really gained that association with it you know since you grew up mostly in america so i didn't have i mean <laughs> i didn't have to learn about that culture that like i grew up in a trinidadian household yeah uh, my mother has never been able to not be clocked as Caribbean in terms of how she speaks. You know, she's been here so many decades. But like, so I, I grew, like, I am, I was raised in a household, which at the time was my mother and myself, um, where, you know, we didn't know anything about Halloween or Thanksgiving. Maybe we shouldn't have ever learned anything about Thanksgiving. Um, and and the customs and traditions that I was reared in, the food, the music, um, was largely uh, Caribbean at the time. Trinidadian people were referred to as West Indian because of Christopher Columbus's poor GPS. Um, and uh, that said, at that point on the broader cultural narrative in America, in Washington, D.C., that was not, it wasn't a space of embarrassment for me, but it wasn't necessarily a space of pride because no one knew where Trinidad was or what it was. And, right. and there weren't a lot of, you know, pop culture references that accurately depicted my culture, nor were there, you know, people in the media eye that showed the sort of breadth of ways that Caribbean American people could be. There was, I mean, I tell you, like I've had to explain to so many people that people of African descent in the Caribbean are, you know, there as a result of slave trade as well, that they aren't native to 
the Caribbean or the America, like things like that were not common knowledge in America. Um, and so for me at this point, it is really dynamic to, especially within black American community, have more people have some general knowledge about Trinidad. And, you know, we're definitely in a moment now where like our annual celebration that's sort of like a corollary to Mardi Gras called Carnival is mm. like something that is a big tourist attraction and, you know, hip hop MCs and Instagram models love to go. And so like people have some like, some level of uh, familiarity. Um, I am very interested in how future generations of Black Americans who are far more embracing of the diaspora of Black identity from continental Africa to presence in uh, Europe uh, and the Caribbean to Afro-Latinx, uh, how, how those connectors are occurring now, I think there's going to be really dynamic, um, creative uh, cross-pollination to occur um, as younger generations of people that are digital natives um, see, you know, all of those cultures as theirs to tap. Yeah, yeah, especially, I mean, the advent of the internet and, uh, you know, and, and interconnection is incredible for this information transfer. Essentially, it's all, it's, it's all it is, is information. Yeah, and it's, it's a different relationship. I feel like uniquely sort of blessed. One of the, one of the things that you all uh, sort of posited to me to think about was when I went back to school. Um, so I went back to undergraduate study, having worked as an apparel designer for a decade, I went back at age 27. And I was, I was fortunate in that I think at that time, I could be on campus and it wasn't like students would walk in a class and assume I was the professor, you know? Um, and that ability to sort of blend with the general undergraduate um, populace allowed me to, uh, to have a, experience that was marked by the perspective that I had at my age, but as well the access to the social spaces and all that that a traditional student would have. Um, when I was doing that, in the midst of that study, I really began to see how my generation had been, I always say that our knowledge is narrow and deep. We know we find a section in a record store and we drill down and buy every ska record ever, right? <laughs> um, and we know it way back. Cause if, it's, if there's some in our parents' collection, you know, we know that too. The generations I began to encounter, their cultural knowledge tended to be wide and shallow so they know so many different broad types, genres across so many different geographic uh, regions. They probably don't know much about things that predate the internet. 
because when was the last time anyone set foot in the library? You know, <laughs> you know what? Who's on right. a who's on a microfiche? Like, look at it. <laughs> so, or you have to go there and talk to people. Or you, but, yeah. <laughs> um, and you don't get to design a second life figure that looks like you would prefer to look if you have that combo. Um, yeah. So, but to be to have a foot in both of those spaces has been really enriching. Um, to be able, you know, to force myself to, you know, talk with people that are far younger about me than me about, you know, um, electro bangra remixes of like Bilofunk because they heard it on SoundCloud um, to get that exposure, but then also to have you know, colleagues and friends of mine uh, from my design work who give me a really unique sort of perspective on various industries when they were analog. And when you had to be, I always say like, there's no, there's no YouTube video, Instagram post, you know, there's no Snapchat loop to pull up. You were in the room or you weren't in the room. And there are five <laughs> different stories about what happened in the room. Right. Maybe through hearing all five, you can piece together what actually happened. Um, I, 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 I'm fascinated about both of those spaces um, and love when I find other people that want to, to sort of keep one foot in, 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 in both. Yeah. It seems like both of your you know purposes this community um, activism purpose, and then also this uh, fashion purpose are yeah, both have a unique relationship with the, with the internet. Um, I think on the, on the community side, people's, you know, those, those voices can be heard if people care, like TikTok, like yeah. if you have something good to say, people will hear you, which is unprecedented. Right. I think, I mean, I navigate that with trepidation sometimes from a low some space of like what it what it takes to, to go right. big in social media space because I literally am like anything I want to say will get broader reach and more engagement if there is twerking <laughs> involved. Anything. Right. And right. Like literally I think what if I I'm like so if I were really committed to this work I would just accept that and like have like, uh, you know, put out the task rabbit call anytime. I need a twerker. It's been uh, so sexualized. Right now, right here, there would be like a little <laughs> and, and things would go further. So I, I navigate that with a little bit of like, which way is up? Um, that said, I have pushed myself to think about like, you know who actually had a very good sort of a distillation of this was uh, AOC, um, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, um, was sort of getting a little bit of static about why certain less experienced, in quotes, younger uh, Democrat uh, candidates won elections. And was it just about flash? And what she was saying is that, you know, there are certain ways of disseminating information via social media that aren't just about superficial gimmicks, but it is a highly visual medium. Uh, there are ways in which video and infographics 
um, bring people into a space of being onboarded far more effectively and can and will cause more forwards and shares. And she's like, when I went and looked at what sort of like lifelong Democrat incumbents were doing on social media, many of them just started accounts like a week out from the, the poll dates and things like that. And so I have pushed myself to really, with the Kelly Initiative, um, think about the ways in which design best practices can support and amplify the advocacy work I do. And so one of the things I, I like kind of tell myself as I do that work is like, think about how when you've worked for certain brands or now if you have certain clients, you really want every decision you make to be substantiated in like industry leading design ideation. And so I don't have a lot of money with the Kelly Initiative. Um, some of the, 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 the realities that inform the work I do, I subsidize it myself. And I also don't allow any sort of financial uh, contribution to be extended to me or even the Kelly Initiative for any sort of speaking because I always want that if the Kelly Initiative has to speak truth about an individual or an organization, it could never be a conflict of interest in regard to them having subsidized the work of the Kelly Initiative. So the Kelly Initiative really wants a level of industry transparency through a census, certain amount of objectivity through an audit of headhunting and recruitment practices, a level of information to be granted to the broader fashion community through an annual report about the demographics and what headhunting firms are participating, and then profile amplification of talented Black professionals through sort of a curation of uh, it list, basically, for lack of a better way of putting it, called the Kelly list, which is analogous to what often occurs in the film industry for screenwriters, where there are these lists curated of like, these are 10 great writers, and it's what allows them to get uh, agent representation and often get uh, um, brought in-house as writers on uh, long-running shows. Uh, so in that, in doing that work, I tasked myself with saying like, I really want to think about the ways that before you can sell an idea, you often can sell a brand. So the Kelly Initiative brand is based in the legacy of a designer named Patrick Kelly, Black American designer who wove a lot of his Southern roots into his work. His hallmark sort of emblem was this button as sort of a nod to his grandmother's dressmaker heritage. Um, so the button represents with its four holes, the four points of the Kelly Initiative. Um, it is Kelly Green because of Patrick Kelly. And we work to sort of build in our visual um, media on Instagram, a sort of constant reconnection to some of that legacy and heritage. And circling back to what I was saying before, I think that that has allowed us to get into a place of acknowledgement within the 
the dialogue around equity and fashion without just having to have the most followers. Because what we put into the dialogue, I feel, had a certain level of resonance and memorability. People remembered the name, the Kelly Initiative. They, uh, you know, when someone says, well, what is it named after? Patrick Kelly brought them back to the fact that this was about equity for black design professionals. We really stuck as we continue to, to always sort of disseminating information in these groups of four, um, because I really think people have limited bandwidth and by the time you get to five, they're not listening anymore. And that's no fault of theirs. We live in so much of an information <laughs> moment. Um, so yeah, so it, for me, navigating the social media space with advocacy work um, has been about, you know, really figuring out my objectives and what I'm willing to do that I still have pride in. In regard to my creative work, it is a lot more frustrating because I, I, do, I, I, I just, I know what sells on, on social and it isn't, it isn't dynamic design or it rarely is. Um, but I, I kind of just like acknowledge that if not make peace with it, accept it and focus on doing the creative work that I find excellent or inspiring and offering that. And then people who, you know, Real, real, recognize real. So, <laughs> right, right, yeah, yeah. The the thing about social media is you, know, you can really tell what the you know what the community at large likes and doesn't like, and sometimes it's not yeah. pretty. Yeah, uh, judging by all like the TikTok being mostly just teenage girls dancing, like that yeah. is just, something disturbing. That I you know it's disturbing. It's like almost dystopian in a way. Oh yeah, it's gotten there. I mean, a, a friend of mine who. Uh, she is another very close friend of mine. Uh, her name is Lola Oganike, and she has worked uh, as a arts and culture journalist uh, for like, uh, God, over two decades now. She really has a, a laser sharp ability to sort of zoom out from these, these momentary trends of how people consume media and look at like, what is the bigger thing here? And she's like, yeah, there are definitely going to be critical essays written about the ways in which culture went off the rails with social media consumption in this moment, as fueled by a, you know, a uh, extremist uh, executive office, as fueled by a pandemic's sort of uh, forcing of everyone into isolation. It was like the perfect storm for um this addictive uh, relationship with social. Um, I personally, um, the, the media that resembles uh, TikTok previously hasn't landed with me. So like I, I had a Vine account, but I didn't enjoy Vine. I have a Snapchat, but I don't really enjoy Snapchat. And TikTok hasn't really landed with, with me. Um, I mean, enough TikTok floats through my Instagram that I'm, I'm sort of aware and present. I, I actually am fascinated with the social media academia space that's burgeoning, where people sit in front of a green screen and do a like 30 second to minute long 
like approaching collegiate level lecture on on whatever subject. I think that that's a fascinating thing that I wouldn't have seen coming in this moment. Um, and the way that those are actually holding space in in the the TikTok is verse as so I, I do think people maybe have you know maybe we did go as far <laughs> maybe we have seen every twerk possible at this point <laughs> um, and now people might be using that space for something I don't want to be all judgmental and old and be like more constructive but um, <laughs> at least the the spectrum of content might be broadening yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating. And things are moving so fast. Um, it's just like you say one thing one day and then a month later, it's like not even true anymore. And it's a new thing. It's, it's crazy. It's very exciting in some ways. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, if I, 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 so I studied in my undergrad study, modern culture and media. That's what my degree is in. And mm -hmm. I was studying that when Facebook was in existent, but it was far more for the insular community of students with whom you were studying at your school, right. maybe finding out like, oh, is there like a concert at a neighboring school or blah, 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 blah. Um, Twitter started uh, while I was studying and Twitter at that time was so more aligned with kind of like the, the, surfacey level of like reels on on instagram so twitter was just like i'm at the grocery and they're out of you know gif again you know it was it was literally just statuses just random stuff yeah random statuses and that's what it stayed as for most of that time i was in school facebook started to evolve into being a place to share opinion and perspective. And then a year after I, I graduated, Instagram went onto the market. So I've been very sort of like professionally as it became necessary to show an industry know-how about social media. Mm -hmm. I've been very vested in like, if there's a new platform, even if I'm not an enthusiast, I need to have an informed perspective on it. I need to mm -hmm. get how it works. Um, but I know the ones for me, I mean, I have, I, I will critique Instagram all day long. That said, I, I like, I'm going to hop off and get to scroll in, you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> right, and, right. and I will always be on there, like saving images and screen capping images. And it, 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 it does, that is the hybrid of the visual and the, language component of Twitter that occurs in Instagram is the most compelling for me. Uh, I, I know that like for most of my life, technology advanced now looking back at a snail's pace. My mother and I both knew televisions. We both knew, you know, landlines. Um, I got a fax machine. Big whoop de do. That was kind of it. I got <laughs> right, right. And a microwave. Maybe. Yeah, a microwave and then snail. <laughs> But like within a short period, my little sister now, who is eight years younger than me, really is the generation that came of age with the rapid acceleration of technology, with phones having in in real time video, and you know the the that I couldn't even explain to myself prior to texting what texting would be, you know, right? Um, 
And, and now is these things, I mean, we will have a hologram phone that might do small versions of people or might have life-size versions of people. This will occur in our lifetimes. Um, and it might be next year, you know, <laughs> right. at the pace. And, and that is, it, it, it does at times feel like, you know, those clamp, the clamp went down on the roller coaster and you're like, I was not ready. <laughs> and then, like, you I mean, it's amazing how quickly people adapt though. Yeah, you know? especially young people. Right. Especially young people. Um, but uh, yeah, when you're in the, when you're in the generation or two generations before hanging on for dear life, um, it, can feel, <laughs> it can feel a little overwhelming, but I, yeah. I now more approach things with a, check everything out, stick with what you like and what works for you and, 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 and leave the rest because Quibi's going to fold anyway. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, uh, we have two more questions for you before, um, before we have to say goodbye. Um, and they're deeper questions. Uh, one is okay. what, you know, what, what is success to you? What does it mean? Um, I navigate the notion of what is success with a real recommitting to self, because one of the realities that I have had to like come to terms with is that there are certain conventional displays and measures of success, which aren't really availed of me. Um, you know, I, I generally, uh, studied with individuals who because of their identity positioning are rarely tasked with doing anything they don't want to do. So like most of my friends from high school, because the predominant of them, predominance of them are white and from socioeconomic spaces of privilege, don't, they do professionally exactly what they want to and when and if they are ready, they will do something entrepreneurial and be their own boss. And there isn't a lot of uh, financial or professional precarity and or a lot of settling for what is just an, the only option afforded you. Now, as a result, they generally tend to walk with the markers or the things that are measured um, as successful. Uh, they, you know, they own property, they have long-term financial investment, and now even their kids have markers of success. <laughs> um, uh, so I had to disembed from that, which means developing, if not a comfort, a level of familiarity with how Many people can be judgmental if you don't exhibit those measures and markers of success and or aren't like signed up to be like gunning for them. So if you're not displaying that like you, it's almost like if you don't display that you're self-conscious about the ways in which you don't look traditionally successful, it can like get under some people's skin. Um, came to terms with that and regrounded myself in some very sort of like concrete, real-time, capitalist, materialistic goals of what success is for me um, in terms of like, you know, what do I need to be happy? 
Um, I think that that was like an important thing. And there are some like, you know, actual things like, yes, I would love at some point in my life to own property. I am obsessed with, you know, craftsman bungalows, but <laughs> I don't, I'm not like an infinity pool pocket glass sliding door house on the hills. I'm not, that's not my world or an aspiration of mine. <coughs> um, I, I'm interested in being financially stable in a manner that allows me to focus more on creative work than on money, but I am not interested in competitive money accruing for competitive money accruing sake. And I don't judge people for whom that is a motivation, but I know it's not me. Um, mm -hmm. And so the success for me would be to be at a point in my life where I was utilizing my time every minute of my time in a manner that aligned with either my core or my community purpose. Mm -hmm. None of my time ideally would be utilized for purposes that now are like, oh, well, I got to do this because that has to impress that client or I got to, you know, do this because uh, who knows how the market is going to behave next year and I got to set up a, no, that stuff does not in any way stimulate me. Um, so yeah, that success for me would be doing those things now to create the opportunity to, in the future, best fully in my core and my community purpose. Yeah, definitely. Um, and that makes a lot of sense. Um, very much aligned with the uh, you know, first half of our conversation. Um, and then the next thing that I want to ask you is more deep, and it's, it's one that I had trouble answering, and then most of the folks we talked to, and you know, it's this question of what is something that uh, you, know, you used to believe to be true and that you, believe, you, know, you strongly believe in that you no longer do uh, believe in? You know, does, does that exist for you? And if so, what is Yeah. Um, I used to, I had a coworker, um, and we are wired in the exact opposite manner. Um, I love, I love, uh, saying people's names on here because, <laughs> because I, I want, like, I don't want any ambiguity and I'm not saying anyone's name that will mind it. He will get such a kick out of this. So this is my coworker, Trevor Ballad. Trevor is, uh, like, Polish Canadian and an immigrant to the uh, to to America, and when I say Polish Canadian, like traces his family's roots back to Poland, but is very Canadian in his gotcha. culture. Um, he moved to New York to go to Parsons and grew as a professional in New York. Um, did not know anything about sort of my Caribbean heritage um, <laughs> until I you know, time and time again over many a heated conversation, broke down to him the realities of my existence. Blah, blah, blah. But uh, over the course of an eight year period, because Trevor and I worked for Michael Kors together, we worked for Isaac Mizrahi together, and we worked for Gap Incorporated together. Over the course of an eight year period, eight year period, we spent more time with each other than anyone else in our lives. Sure. Um, and so we have, you know, at this point in our lives, geography and other situations have resulted in us not like speaking as frequently, but 
like a sibling, there's, you know, there's certain things I know. Uh, I know that Trevor once when he was a teenager was working in a restaurant and a vat of blue cheese fell on him. And now he has a deathly phobia of blue cheese. You know, like I know <laughs> things about him that you could only know when you spend eight years really around the clock with someone. And I, at the time, working in a design studio with Trevor, uh, had a kind of an antagonistic relationship with another coworker. And I really felt that I could like open this person's eyes and change them, like through proof of this and substantiation of that. And, and Trevor said, you can't change people. And Trevor and I disagreed about that for a long time. And I would say to answer your question, the thing that I used to believe that I don't believe anymore is that you can fundamentally change people. But there is a caveat. You can't change people unless those people have a fundamental interest in changing. So there are people that we all encounter who are looking for those who they encounter who they meet along the way to grow them, to open their mind, mm -hmm. sometimes to just expose them and th they may maintain their same perspectives or sometimes as I have, I have done with situations and people I've encountered, have your entire perspective completely flipped upside down or partially or some degree. Um, so that is something that I've had to really sort of process because my gut inclination as someone who's really sort of analytically minded is mm -hmm. it's funny like i the schools i attended there were no debate teams because everything was debate team everything was like what are your three points of proof and <laughs> what is your euclidean sort of substantiation blah, 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 blah. everything was like that so my mind functions very much in that way. It's very easy for me to accept things as like existent that I don't, that don't inspire me because once someone substantiates, well, this is what motivates people. They're motivated by money or capitalism. And so they're gonna do this. I don't, I, yeah. My mind is now, if not hardwired, very wired that way. Um, and what I did for myself was begin to open up to other people changing my perspectives. So as a gay black man who came of age in a moment in which the trans community was denigrated and seen as compromising of the integrity of the broader gay community, I had to open up to first, gay male friends of mine offering me new ways to look at people of trans experience. Then I had to open up to being in community with people of trans experience. And then I had to open up to being in community with people of trans experience that wasn't um, familiar or didn't have much overlap with mine. So the first trans people that I would say I was in community with were people that were transitioning from medical uh, assess medical community assessment as male to self-affirmed female identity. And mm -hmm. later and more recently, I've been increasingly in community with people that are moving through transition 
in the opposite direction. And mm-hmm. that for me is a space of unfamiliarity um, and having to be open to being changed. I've now become aware of when I'm encountering people in regard to certain discussions that initially it's very easy to tell if they are capable of change. And I used to kind of vest in the notion that everyone had the capacity to change. They only do if they're interested in doing so. And that was a, uh, a, a wake up call for me, you know? Um, but it is one that has allowed me, like I said earlier, as I budget my bandwidth um, and, and tr- attempt to place right. spaces that I see as constructive, it's one that I think has allowed me to be more um, focused in how mm-hmm. I spend my energy. Yeah, so you can pick, pick your marks a little bit pick, more. Pick those battles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it makes sense. And I think that's a really just valuable lesson, um, you know, of, of that growth mindset mm-hmm. um, is that people are only going to change and evolve if they're looking for it and they, they want to grow. Um, but that starts with yourself. So, yeah. so you, have, you know, you have to start by doing that yourself and uh, then you're ready to have that conversation with other people too. Yeah. yeah, the other the other thing that like I have really began to like I've really begun to to think about certain cultural evolutions through basically a Darwinian lens. And for better or worse, um, you know, part of the Trump era normalization of white supremacy and xenophobia has been about the ways that he has been like good at social, you know? Cause right. what is it, what do they say? The first thing is consistent content. You gotta keep putting it out there. Like he's wired for that. So there, there is a certain survival of fittest. Yes, I, in some way, implied that he could be fit when he's so not fit, but, right. <laughs> but there's a, there's a, there's a, social media intuitive acumen that he has, fine. Mm -hmm. Um, That said, another component of the Darwinian evolution is that things die. Nothing lives forever. And I do know that in this moment, there are younger generations of people globally that with this broader access to information, at a younger age, they are having so much more sophisticated and spectrally informed conversations. So many people of my era, they get, it's like you get so far into your adulthood, you're so hardened in echo chamber um, conversations that by the time you hear new things, it's like it's so difficult to be receptive. Right. But younger people are having far more spectral conversations at a younger age. And so I am kind of vesting in the notion that, you know, some people just by virtue of age will go by the wayside. And it just means that dinosaurs like me, you know, we got to <laughs> hit the elliptical and like stay in the game uh, <laughs> and stay in dialogue with those far more sort of, uh, macro informed, even with perspectives that aren't their own younger generations. That's something that I'm really, so sometimes I say like, oh, my industry is so frustrating. I'm waiting for these people that really don't want to redistribute power 
to get out. And they will get out. They have like 15 more years, tops. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, that's, it's amazing that the generational, you know, changes are very real. Yeah. Um, and it's something I've noticed even like looking at people slightly younger than me. Yeah. Um, I grew up, you know, around technology, but it was coming out when I was in middle school. We were starting to do like that's when smartphones were coming out and did just some computer stuff in elementary school. But now it's these kids who grew up with the internet and uh, they, you know, they're just four or five, six years younger and they think totally differently. Um, so, you know, it's going to be really interesting to see how things play out, but Keyway, thank you so much for coming on to talk with us. This has been a fantastic conversation. I learned so much and um, yeah, I just really appreciate your time. Aaron, Riley, I can't thank you all enough. This has been um, a really good prompt for me to take a moment as, uh, you know, holidays approach and we enter yet another complex and displacing phase of the COVID era to sort of distill things a bit. And, and uh, so I am really, really uh, honored to have gotten to share with you all and grateful for an opportunity to, uh, you know, kind of like, Take, pick up all the post-its of like dotted mental thoughts and, and, and sort of line them up. It's been really, really great. Thank you. That's great. Yeah. And that's what we're about, you know, just exploring and, and learning something new. So I'm glad it was a helpful process for you. And thank you to all of you listeners for tuning in on this episode of The Study of Purpose. I uh, hope you learned something and we will see you next time.